Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Well, welcome back to our Wednesday night studies. You can open your Bible to Job 24. It is interesting and providential timing that some of the themes that we are about to come across in Job 24, 25, 26 are themes that are also brought up in Romans. So we're going to see a lot of corresponding Old Testament and New Testament ideas tonight. Job is going to really begin to defend himself. He's going to reach the point in what we're going to read tonight where he's sort of confused, sort of flummoxed by the fact that he knows God is absolutely sovereign. He knows God's in charge of everything. God is everywhere. Nothing happens without God's permission and God's active empowerment of that thing. He knows that, and yet he can't seem to find God. He knows God's everywhere. God's doing everything, and yet he can't seem to get God to just sit down and listen to his complaint. And so he's starting to justify himself and thinking back on what his life used to be and what his life is like now, we'll probably get to that next week. And as he looks at that comparison and recognizes his own righteousness, he continues to think that it is just sort of unfair that God should give him an accounting, that God should tell him why this is happening, because he's just really confused by it. Now, you'll remember that three weeks ago, the last thing we saw was that Job's friends were making the argument that bad things happen to bad people, good things happen to good people. Job must be bad because these bad things are happening to him. And then the argument was made that bad people have their lives cut short and that their children don't prosper and that all these evil things happen to them in their lives because they're evil. And Job's response was, yeah, but that's not true. That sounds good, but the simple fact is evil people flourish. Bad things happen and they seem to go on and live a good life. So Starting in chapter 24, he's going to start listing all the wrongs that people do. And yet, despite the fact that they do all these wrong things, they still seem to be fine by any of the world's reckoning. Then after he argues that, Bildad's going to speak, and it's the shortest speech that you're going to see of any of the three friends or any of their arguments A very short speech where Bildad is just going to, recognizing that he can't get Job to admit his own righteousness or his own guilt or his own sinfulness, he finally just comes down on the side of, well then look, everybody's guilty. So you must be guilty because everybody's guilty. And of course, we theologically would agree that everybody's guilty. In fact, that's what we're going to see as we continue in the book of Romans on Sunday mornings. 
so that Paul is going to argue right along with Isaiah that everybody's guilty except that Bildad poses it in a way where he doesn't see a solution to it he doesn't see an answer to it Paul sees a solution he sees an answer he sees the Messiah he sees the Redeemer and so when Job answers back to Bildad he's even going to get into the idea of a mediator and that's really, really interesting considering how ancient this book is. So there, that should kind of catch us up, and that is coming attractions, and we should be ready to start reading at chapter 24. The first two lines of chapter 24 of Job are basically Job saying, why doesn't God post a schedule somewhere so that we know what he's up to? So that we know when he's judging. Because at this point, that's what he and his friends are arguing about. When do the evil get judged? Job is going to continue to argue that they get judged, but someday. Perhaps even in eternity. Even in Hades, which he's going to call Abaddon here. Someday they're going to be judged. But not immediately, not in this lifetime. And as I said, Job is going to get continually frustrated by that fact, and he just wishes he could get God to sit down for a minute and explain why these things are. And I don't think there's a single person in the room that wouldn't like an answer to that question. <laughs> why are things the way they are? Well, that's Job's conundrum, and then he's going to end up starting to defend himself and justify himself and kind of conclude that it's not fair that this is all happening to him and that's when Elihu the young man is going to speak up and then God's going to defend himself and start out with who is this that darkens my counsel without knowledge so the simple reality is we don't understand everything and because we don't understand everything we shouldn't be trying to put God on trial because we don't know what he's doing all right, that was introduction 1B. <laughs> Chapter 24, verse 1. Why are times not stored up by the Almighty? And why do those who know him not see his days? In other words, why doesn't God set up a time frame? Why doesn't he set up a schedule? Why aren't there times stored up with the Almighty so that those who know him can come and check with him? What are you doing? When are you doing it? What can we expect? Why are these things happening? He says, why doesn't the Almighty act like that? And yet we who know him don't get to see it. We don't get to understand it. We don't see his days. And yet, starting at verse 2, he's going to list bad things that people do. This isn't going to take a great deal of commentary Verse 2, some remove the landmarks. They seize and devour flocks. If they move a landmark, what that means is that they've moved the stone that designates the borders of one person's land to another person's land. And when they move those stones, they're basically stealing land. And they do that while they seize and devour other people's flocks. And they drive away the donkeys of the orphans. In other words, the orphans who have nothing but maybe just a few animals, they end up driving them off, so the orphans end up with nothing. And they take the widow's ox, her only animal, as a pledge. 
They push the needy aside from the road. The poor of the land are made to hide themselves altogether. Behold, as wild donkeys in the wilderness, they go forth seeking food in their activity as bread for their children in the desert. In other words, the poor go out just like like brute beasts, like wild donkeys, just seeking food every day. And yet it's like looking for bread in the desert. They harvest their fodder in the field and they glean the vineyard of the wicked They spend the night naked without clothing, and they have no covering against the cold. They are wet with the mountain rains, and they hug the rock for want of shelter. That's the state of the poor, the impoverished on planet Earth. Why is that okay with God? Why doesn't God explain this to us? Starting at verse 9, he looks another way and says, Others snatch the orphan from the breast, and against the poor they take a pledge. They cause the poor to go about naked without clothing, and they take away the sheaves from the hungry. Within the walls, they produce oil, and they tread wine presses, but then they thirst. From the city, men groan, and the souls of the wounded cry out, and yet God does not pay attention to this foolishness, to this folly. It just seems to go on and go on and go on. Why doesn't God reveal himself? Why doesn't he explain why this all is? Others have been with those who rebel against the light, and they do not want to know its ways, nor to abide in its paths. Those people are all around us these days. The people who want nothing to do with the light of God, the light of revelation, the light of wisdom, and yet they populate the planet all over the place. They don't abide in its paths, and they don't want to know its ways. Verse 14, the murderer arises at dawn, and then he kills the poor and the needy, and at night he's a thief. And the eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight, saying, no eye will see me, and he disguises his face. In the dark, they dig into houses, and they shut themselves up by day. They do not know the light. For the morning is the same to him as thick darkness, for he is familiar with the terrors of the thick darkness. In other words, there are just some people who are so committed to evil and to working wrong that they not only don't want to know the light, they dwell in thick darkness. Their minds are corrupted so badly. Why doesn't God explain this? Why does this continue to be that way? Verse 18. They're insignificant on the surface of the water. What that means is it's like foam on the water. It just it rises up and then it dissipates. And they seem just insignificant. Their portion is cursed on the earth. And they do not turn toward the vineyards. In other words, even when they plant vineyards, nothing comes up for them. Drought and heat consume the snow waters. And so does Sheol consume those who have sinned. A mother will forget him. The worm feeds sweetly till he is remembered no more. And wickedness will be broken like a tree. So here's Job again saying, wickedness is going to be, at some point, settled in justice. But until it does, 
It seems like the drought and the heat consume snow waters in the same way Sheol consumes those who have sinned. They all go down into the grave, and then they're forgotten. The mother will forget them. The worms feed sweetly on them, and then they're remembered no more. Their wickedness is broken off, just done away like a tree. Meanwhile, though, he wrongs the barren woman, the evil man does, and he does no good for the widow, but he drags off the valiant by his power, and he rises, but no one has assurance of life. He provides them with security, and they are supported, and his eyes are on their ways. They are exalted for a little while, then they are gone. Moreover, they are brought low, And like everything that's gathered up, even like the heads of grain, they're cut off. Okay, so basically his argument so far is, if they're rich, they die. They cut off, they go to Sheol. If they're poor, they die. They die terrible deaths sometimes, and then they go to the grave, and that's just the end of them. And so people come, and people go, and people come and go, and it all just seems so insignificant. It doesn't seem to really accomplish much of anything. Why doesn't God explain this to me? Now, remember that Job is saying all this in response to the argument from his friends who have said that the evil people have an evil time in this very life, that God is going to judge them now, that bad things are going to happen to them here and now. And Job's argument here is, no, not really. Evil and poor alike, the accuser and the accused. The one who's rich, the one who's poor, they all go to the grave. And it all seems insignificant as the foam on the waves. And as I've said that, as I just explained that, every head in the room was nodding. We all kind of understand that argument. And so Job says in verse 25, now if that is not so, who can prove me a liar? And make my speech worthless. So Job knows this is real life. This is what it's really like. So why doesn't God store up these times? Why doesn't he explain himself? Why doesn't he set a schedule? Why doesn't he explain his judgments? Why doesn't he come to those who know him and explain what he's doing? And that takes us to... Chapter 25. Now, after that argument, that argument from reality, Bildad really has nowhere else to go. He and his two friends have three times now confronted Job and said, you must be sinful. You must have done something wrong. And they don't seem to be making any headway with Job. He continues to retain his integrity. So now Bildad is just going to go for, look, you have to be guilty because everybody's guilty. And this is the shortest of the arguments that you're going to find anywhere in the book of Job. And then it's followed by Job's reply, which is the longest reply you're going to find anywhere in the book of Job. And then just about the time you think Job's reply was long, then Elihu is going to show up and kind of mop up the floor with everybody else with his long explanation of how we ought to react to what God's doing. So chapter 25, very short chapter, says, Then Bildad the Shuhite, little short guy, never mind. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered, and by the way, 
most of what he's going to say here is true except that he's saying these truths for the wrong reason one of my pet peeves is when people use a Bible verse in order to say something the verse doesn't say but what they end up saying is still right and so people end up going well I can't really argue with that he ended up in a good place except that he used the wrong text to do it yes. <laughs> you're, you're with that huh I hate that. <laughs> exactly as we ought to and so Bildad's kind of going to do that he's going to say things here that are true in fact I have quoted Bildad through the many years when I talk about the absolute majesty and sovereignty of God. And I say that uh, men cannot approach God because he is encased in a light that no man approaches. And that he's pure and that he's holy. And then I say, and the, the stars, the sun, the moon are not pure in his sight. Okay, well, that's what Bildad's going to say here. It's a truism. It's genuine. It's just that he's saying it in order to tell Job you're guilty. You have to be guilty. His theology is wrong, and yet he's going to declare correct things. So he says, dominion and awe belong to him, to God. They belong to him who establishes peace in his heights. Is there any number to his troops? In other words, how do you number the armies of God? The angelic host, how would you begin to number them? And upon whom does his light not rise? In other words, if you're on planet Earth and it was night and then it becomes day, well, that's God that did that. He put the sun and moon and stars in their course. And that light belongs to God and it shines every day and everybody sees that light. Upon whom does his light not rise? How then, verse 4, how then can a man be just with God? That's the theme of the book of Romans. How can a man be just with God? It's a very, very good question. How can a man, especially the way Bildad is about to describe human beings, which is an accurate way to describe human beings, how can any man be just before God? Now, as I said, Bildad saying it to Job to say there's no way you can be just with God. You're continuing to retain your integrity, but that's an impossibility. You can't be just with God. How then can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of woman? If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man that worm the NASB says that maggot. Now, we might be able to argue that maybe Bildad's gone a little too far, except that King David says the same thing and identifies human beings as maggots. So he's saying correct things here. If God is high and holy and majestic and completely separate and human beings born of woman are nothing but worms, how in the world can they stand just before God? How can they be justified? And again, that's such a great theological question that even Paul's going to bring it up in the book of Romans in order to say there's only one way that men can be justified before God, and that is to have a mediator. That again is why Christianity 
and the intercession of Christ is so important because from the oldest book in the Bible all the way through the New Testament, this question just keeps coming up. Recognizing human depravity, how can any human be just with God? I don't think it's a, a mistake that God put it in his word all the way back here at the very beginning. This is the essential element of all Christianity, of all the Bible, of all the dealings between men and God. The chief question is always, how are you going to be justified when you stand before God? And you can't do it because you're a worm. And the best you got is to look at all the rest of the maggots and go, I'm the better maggot. I'm not as bad a maggot as that guy. He's really maggoty, but I'm top maggot. But if you're top maggot, still a maggot. If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man, that worm, that maggot, and the son of man, that worm, and that's all Bildad has to say. That's it. That's his whole argument right there. It's almost like he's just become frustrated with trying to get through to Job. You'll notice that he doesn't even say anything to Job about repent. Up till now, everybody's been saying, change your mind, repent, admit you've done something wrong. He doesn't go there at all. He just simply says, look, we're talking about God and we're talking about you. How can you possibly be justified before God? Here's Job's response. Then Job responded, quite sarcastically, I will add. Job responded, what a help you are to the weak. Look at me. Look at the sores. Look at all I've lost. Look at me sitting on the ash heaps. I've got worms inside my sores. Look at the condition I'm in. I stink. My friends hate me. People abhor me. People are afraid of me. Don't bring the children around me. And you tell me that there's no way I can be justified before a holy God. You are such a big help. How you have saved the arm without strength. In other words, instead of strengthening me and helping me, you've just made me feel worse. But of course, he says it sarcastically. How you have saved the arm without strength. What counsel you have given to the one without wisdom. Yeah, I'm really stupid. I get it, Bill Daddy. Yeah, I'm real stupid. Yeah, okay. What counsel you have given me. And what helpful insight you have abundantly provided. So I'm without wisdom. I have no understanding. You've come to counsel me, and trust me, you have really given me an abundance of wisdom. Thank you so much, my friend. To whom have you uttered words, and whose spirit was expressed? Through you. In other words, you're not telling me anything I need to know. You haven't brought any wisdom to me. You claim to be speaking for the forefathers and humans in general and how everybody's always known this. But really, to whom have you uttered words and whose spirit was expressed through you? Now he's going to talk about the greatness of God. Since Bildad has introduced that topic... Job is going to continue talking about it. He says, the departed spirits tremble. Under the waters, 
and their inhabitants, in other words, the inhabitants of the oceans. When departed spirits leave, they go into Sheol. When they go into Sheol, they are under the oceans and under the ocean inhabitants. The deepest place on the planet where creatures still live are in the deep trenches of the ocean. And Job knows that and says when people die, they go to a deeper place than that. Naked is Sheol before them. And Abaddon has no covering. Abaddon is another word for Hades. He, God, stretches out the north over the empty space. This will make it easier for you to understand. How many people... um, are building apartment complexes at the North Pole. (laughs) How many housing complexes are going up there? Anybody here want to start a campaign to move to the North Pole? Well, Job knows that. Job knows that the northern parts are just empty space, and yet God's there. He stretches out the north over empty space. I sometimes... I'm overwhelmed when I see pictures of, like, Antarctica. South Pole where just nobody is and nobody can go except a few penguins, brave little penguins hanging out down there. And I think, what's that for? Why is that there? Only God ever gets to see it. Unless some intrepid photographer goes up there and takes a little bit of video, we never get to see it. And we certainly don't get to see the expanse of it. We have no idea what's going on underneath that ice. No idea. God knows. We have no idea what creatures live at the very bottom of the trenches of the ocean. God knows. He put them there for his own entertainment. He's the only one who ever gets to see them. He stretches out the north over the empty space, and he hangs the earth on nothing. That, by the way is a fact to all of us. We understand that the earth is just out there in the midst of space. But if you go back and you read some of the theories, some of the legends that have grown up around how the planet is held up, there's things like Atlas. Have you ever heard of the books or the movies? Atlas Shrugged. Well, that was because Atlas was supposed to be holding up earth. Seems silly to us now, but there were a lot of people who just figured the earth couldn't possibly just be hanging out there in space. Something has to be supporting it. But Job, way back then, says, God just put the earth out there in the middle of nothing. He was scientifically correct. He stretches out the north over the empty space, and he hangs the earth on nothing. And he wraps up the waters into his clouds And the cloud does not burst under them. We know that. We understand condensation. We understand where rain comes from. But all of that science, all of that knowledge that the clouds suck up the moisture from the earth and then the clouds retain that moisture until it's time for God to open them and bring the water back onto the planet, Job knows all that. Again, scientifically correct. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, and the cloud does not burst under them. He obscures the face of the full moon, and he spreads his cloud over it. If you look up one night, and you can't see the moon because thick clouds have covered it, 
Job argues, that's God. That's the handiwork of God. You can see God doing that. By the way, that's the same argument that Paul's going to bring up. We'll see it this Sunday as we continue through Romans 1. He's going to say that the creation itself demonstrates the reality and the existence of God. The very fact that the creation exists and that it works proves that there had to be a creator. And so that which can be known about God, not intimate knowledge of God, not understanding of his ways or his theology, but the demonstration that God actually exists, Paul's going to argue, walk outside and look up. If you see stars and planets and the earth is moving and you don't fall off the planet and you see clouds and you see stars, that, that's God. And yet he's going to say, and people hold that knowledge down in unrighteousness. That's the same argument that Job is making here. All of creation proves God. Verse 10. This is an interesting phrase. He has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and dark. Okay, so what is the boundary of light and dark? Well, that's that timeline where night is becoming day and day is becoming night. In other words, it's the horizon. And he's saying the horizon above the surface of the waters has a curvature to it, showing that the earth would be round. He knew that way back then. He says, look at the circle of the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble. That's probably a reference to mountains, high mountains that reach up toward the heavens. And yet they tremble. There are earthquakes. And they are amazed at his rebuke. In other words, when God gets angry at mountains, mountains know enough to tremble. Human beings, not so much. He quieted the seas with his power. Does that sound familiar? The very fact that the sea is passable, the very fact that you can put a boat on the water, even though sometimes the wind blows and the waves come up and the storms happen, the very fact that these huge expanses of water are passable, he says, that's God. God allowed that the water sometimes would be calm and that you could travel over it. So it's God that quieted the sea by his power. And then Jesus walks on the planet. You know that story. And he's in the bottom of the boat, and he's sleeping. And the storm comes up, and the wind comes up, and his disciples say to him, Master, don't you care that we're about to perish? And it says he got up, goes up onto the deck of the boat, tells the wind and the sea, be quiet, and it does it. He says, peace be still, and the seas are quieted. Why? Because God quiets the sea by his power, and then Jesus walked on the planet and quieted the sea by his power, proving that he's the very God that Job talked about. These are big, big themes. That's why I keep saying the Bible only has one author. The Bible is all a book written by the Spirit of God. Even though it was written through men who were inspired by that spirit, that single author continues to tie together these great big themes. Why did Job bother to say that God quieted the sea with his power? I think it's because the Holy Spirit of God knew that Jesus was going to come on the planet and do that very thing. Because the Spirit of God who wrote this Bible is the Spirit of Sovereignty who knows everything.
Just thought I'd point that out. He quieted the sea with his power, and by his understanding, he shattered Rahab, or Rahab. Earlier when we came across that word, I said that that may be a description of a sea monster. But that word is also, in the Hebrew, a reference to pride and arrogance and boastfulness. So it can be that God, with his understanding, shattered sea monsters, because later he's going to say he puts a hook in the nose of Leviathan. So it could be a reference to that, but it also might be, based on the Hebrew original word, it might be that he's the one that shatters those who are boastful and proud, and that he does that by his intimate understanding and knowledge of everyone. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab, or Rechab. By his breath, the heavens are cleared. You look up one day, and it's all cloudy. You wait a couple hours, and suddenly the sky's all blue. Job says, that's God. God did that. He exhaled. And that created the wind, and his clouds moved. His hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. In other words, the serpent, the sea monster, the devil, the dragon, all of that language is used in the Bible to describe the worst of creatures. And here Job is saying, and yet his hand can drive them through. His hand can stop them anytime he wants. Now, now that he's described all that, now that we get some sense of the God he's talking about, now that we know that this is a God who's in charge of everything that goes on in his cosmos, in verse 14, Job says, and behold, those are just the fringes of his ways. That's just the the outskirts. Those are just little details. I haven't even begun to tell you what God really controls. I've just pointed at the great big stuff, and that's just the outer edge of what God does. Those are the very fringes of his ways. And yet, how faint a word we ever hear from him. So God's in control of everything. God's in charge of everything. God's controlling everything. If we see stars, that's God. We see clouds, that's God. We see a clear sky, that's God. Whatever happens, that's God. You see sickness. You see men who should be punished, living good lives anyway. You see the poor oppressed. You see whatever it is that you see going on on the planet. He says, that's just God. It's God, it's God, it's God. And yet, despite that, we barely hear a word from him. I want to find him. I want to locate him because I want to make my case to him. That's what Job is getting at. If I could find him, if I could get him to sit down, I could make my argument. I see him everywhere. He's in everything. I just can't seem to locate him. (laughs) I just can't seem to make my case to him. But his mighty thunder, who can understand? I find that phrase humorous. Because when we were teaching way back when in the book of Revelation, there's a moment when the thunder speaks. And then John is told by an angel, don't write down what the thunder said. I immediately started saying, I want to know what the thunder said. I have a t-shirt at home. And to give you some idea who brought me this t-shirt, it's made from Australian cotton. So there, that might be a clue. And it says, I want to know what the thunder said. It's a black t-shirt with white writing. I want to know what the thunder said. 
all the way back here in Job, like bookends. Job, the early book, Revelation, the end book, thunder speaks. You think about that? I mean, we hear thunder, we see lightning, we hear thunder, everything rumbles. There's apparently language being spoken into nature by God through his thundering. That's almost too big for us to conceive of. His mighty thunder, who can understand? Chapter 27. Then Job continued his discourse. And he said, now he's going to argue for his own righteousness again. He says, as God lives, who has taken away my right. In other words, I used to have some authority. I used to have some ability to tell people what to do. When he starts defending himself, you're going to see the continuation of that, but not now. God lives who has taken away my right. This happened to me because God did this to me. And the Almighty, he has embittered my soul. As God lives, who has taken away my right. And the Almighty, who has embittered my soul. For as long as my life is in me, and the breath of God is in my nostrils, my lips certainly will not speak unjustly, nor will my tongue mutter a lie or mutter deceit. Far be it from me that I should declare you guys to be right. That's what they want most. They just want him to repent, change his mind, and say, yeah, you guys are right. That's right. Okay, let me admit what I've actually done wrong. You caught me. You got me. You've convinced me. You pounded me down. Okay, I'm going to admit. He says here, there's no way I'm ever giving in to you guys and admitting that you're right. Because Job continues to retain his integrity. He knows that he didn't do anything that would have brought on the amount of calamity that he's going through. My lips certainly will not speak unjustly, nor will my tongue mutter deceit. And yet far be it from me that I should declare you to be right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. And my heart does not reproach any of my days. In other words, I can look back over my life and say, okay, I did okay. I did all right. So Job is continuing to declare his righteousness. This is in response to Bildab saying, nobody can be just before God. Nobody can be righteous. And Job saying, but <laughs> I can't come up with anything that would cause God to turn on me the way he has. And I want him to explain it to me. Then he's going to start talking about the godless people of the planet. And again, he's going to start saying, eventually, justice is going to come to them. But it doesn't happen right here and now. But because I declare my righteousness, verse 7, may my enemy be as the wicked and my opponent as the unjust. I think he's talking to them. He's saying, you, you've turned yourself enemy to me now. May you be like the unjust. For what is the hope of the godless when he is cut off? When God requires his life? Boy, that's a good question. That is a really good theological, philosophical question. Paul picks it up, talks about it in the New Testament, and says that we're not like the world that has no hope. 
Whenever we run into that idea, I end up having to ask the question, how do people who don't know God, who don't know Christ, who don't have faith, how do they get through this life? Considering the fact that we do know by simple observation and by the Bible, we do know that life down here on planet Earth is hard. And we know that good and bad things happen to the just and the unjust. We know that some people get rich and some people get poor. And, and it just looks like it's all chaos down here sometimes. And so naturally, we would ask, how do people get through this life who have no hope? Well, Job goes a step further and says, when they die and they stand before God, that God that you've described, Bildad, what hope do they have? For what is the hope of the godless when he is cut off, when God requires his life? Will God hear his cry? When distress comes upon him, I think that means when the judgment comes on him. Will he take delight in the Almighty? Oh, yes, now I worship you, now that you're punishing me this way. and Now that I'm in judgment and thrown into outer darkness, now I take delight in you. Job's saying, no, you better delight in the Lord right now. Because God's not going to hear your cry when distress comes upon you. Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call on God at all times? I'm going to instruct you in the power of God. What is with the Almighty, I will not conceal. So Job's going to say, here's what I've learned so far. I'm going to tell you guys about it. Behold, all of you have seen it. Why then do you act so foolishly? This is the portion of a wicked man from God and the inheritance which tyrants receive from the Almighty. Though his sons are many, they are destined for the sword and his descendants will not be satisfied with bread. In other words, his descendants are going to starve. His survivors will be buried because of a plague and their widows will not be able to weep Though he piles up silver like dust and prepares garments as plentiful as the clay, he may prepare it, but the just will wear it, and the innocent will divide up his silver. He has built his house like the spider's web, or as a hut which the watchman has made. And he lies down rich, but then he's going to die. That's what he's saying in verse 19. He lays down rich, but then never again he opens his eyes. And it all is no more. Terrors overtake him like a flood. A tempest steals him away in the night. And the east wind carries him away and he is gone. For it whirls him away from his place. For it will hurl at him without sparing. And he will surely try to flee from its power. But men will clap their hands, which is a sign of derision, and they will hiss at him from his place. Now Job is going to do a really interesting thing. He's going to say that human beings at this point dig into the earth. Obviously, there was mining going on back in Job's day. Now that he's described the state of human beings and the state of evil people and how they're ultimately going to fall into judgment, 
and how even on the planet it may not happen in their lifetime, but eventually even their offspring are going to pay for the sins that they've committed, the same way that God talks about the fathers eating grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And so he says, eventually God is going to mete out justice. And yet human beings will dig into mountains to dig out a rare jewel or to find a little gold or something. He says they dig for it, they mine for it, they, they go down into the earth where no animal has ever been, where no bird has ever flown. They'll dig down into the planet looking for things that are tangible. And then he's going to say, but who can find wisdom? Men will spend their whole lives trying to find riches, trying to gain stuff. They'll even dig down into the rocks of the earth looking for stuff. And he says, but wisdom, that's what you need. And men, for some reason, don't seem to go hunting for it with that same vim and vigor that they go looking for gold. And he's saying, that's more precious than the gold. Go find wisdom. Here's how he puts it. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place where they refine gold. Iron is taken from the dust, and from the rock, copper is smelted. Man puts an end to darkness. In other words, they take torches down into dark caves. And to the farthest limit, he searches out the rock in the gloom and in the deep shadow. He sinks a shaft far from habitation. In other words, it's so far down, this shaft that he's building, that nobody lives down there. It's forgotten by the foot. And they hang and swing to and fro far from men. In other words, as they go down these long shafts looking for things that they can mine up, they're tied with ropes and they're being lowered down into these shafts. And he says they hang and they swing to and fro, but they're far from human beings. They're far from men. And the earth, from it comes food. And underneath it, it's turned up like fire, another scientific reality. <clears throat> Underneath the earth, there's magma and fire and lava. And he knows all that. And yet men will dig down into that looking for riches, looking for anything that will make them a little better off. Its rocks, the rocks of the earth, are a source for sapphires. And its dust contains gold. This is a path, that path underneath the earth that no bird of prey knows. They fly above the earth, but we're talking about under the earth now. Nor has the falcon's eye caught sight of it. The proud beasts have not trodden down there. When you dig down into a deep mine, you don't find lions, tigers, bears. They know better than to go down in there. But men light their torches and go down in there just in case they find something that will enrich them. The proud beasts have not trodden it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. He puts his hand on the flint. In other words, uh, when human beings in those days were doing mining and trying to break up the earth, they would use flint rock, and they would pound on the flint, almost like we use nails, in order to break up the earth as they search for their treasures. He puts his hand on the flint, and he overturns the mountains at the base. In other words, they're digging into the base and the sides of mountains looking for valuables. 
He hews out channels through the rocks, and his eye sees anything precious. It's why he's digging. It's why he's looking. He's looking for gold. He's looking for jewels. He's looking for silver and copper. He's looking for anything precious, and he'll go through all this effort, through all this work. Verse 11, he dams up the streams from flowing, and what is hidden he brings out to the light. In other words, he'll stop streams from flowing so that he can see the rocks at the base of the stream so that he can look for gold. People are still doing that kind of thing. So Job's point is, they put all this work into finding anything that they can deem valuable, and yet they're not finding the most valuable of things. Because verse 12 says, but where can wisdom be found? It goes surging. It doesn't matter where God has hidden these precious stones. Men will find it. Men will dig it out. Men will mine it up. Men will go looking for it. He says, but where are you going to go find wisdom? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value. Man, is that true? Do I need to prove that one to anybody? That wisdom and understanding of the things of God are more important than the riches of this world. And yet men don't seem to know its value. Stupidity runs rampant. As I think we could all prove by five minutes on the internet. That seems easy enough. Man does not know its value. Nor is it found in the land of the living. In other words, if you're going to find wisdom, it's not going to be from other human beings. I think, again, he's pointing this at his three friends. You've claimed that you're giving me all this insight, all this wisdom. You shared all that with me. In fact, one of the taunts that Job came back at Bildab with was, oh, thank you for all this wisdom you've shared with me. And he says, it's not found among the living. Men don't know genuine wisdom. If you could find it, let's say that you went into the ocean and you went digging down into the ocean. Well, the deep says, it's not with me. I don't have the wisdom you're looking for. The sea says, it's not with me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for wisdom, nor can silver be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or in sapphires. Gold or glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for articles of fine gold. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned, and the acquisition of wisdom is above that of the acquisition of pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it nor can it be valued in pure gold. He's just going through the list right here of all the things that men in his day would exchange for products. These were the value, the money that they were exchanging in those days, the things that they found valuable. And he said, none of that is enough to buy wisdom. Where then does wisdom come from? And where is the place of understanding? Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all living And it is concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon, which is Hades, and death say, with our ears, we've heard a report of it. In other words, the denizens of hell, Hades itself, knows that wisdom exists. We've heard the report of wisdom, 
So where are you going to get wisdom? You can't buy it. None of your treasures can get it for you. It's not among the living, and it's not among the dead. It's not in Hades. It's not in Abaddon. And yet it's the most precious thing you can possibly gain. Where are you going to find it? Verse 23. God understands its way. There's the answer. Where are you going to find wisdom? With God alone. It's the only place you're going to find it. Not among men. Not among dead men. Not among demons. Not among angels. Not among the riches of this world. Not even if you become the richest, most powerful person on the planet. You're still not going to gain godly wisdom. God has to teach you that. God understands its way. And he knows its place. I love that language. He knows right where wisdom is. He knows where it's kept. Janine has a phrase that she uses with me a lot. If I put something down where it doesn't belong, she'll say, that's not where it lives. Except she says it with an Australian accent. Because everything in our house has a place where it lives. That's what Job is saying. God knows where wisdom is, where it belongs, where it lives, where's its place. God's in charge of wisdom. He knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. That is a declaration of omnipresence. That is saying that God in his absolute power, control, and sovereignty sees everything, is everywhere, empowers everything. He looks to the very ends of the earth. He sees everything under the heavens. In other words, you can't hide from him. But because he has all knowledge and because he sees all things, he's the only one who has genuine understanding. And you can't have that kind of understanding because you can't see through that wall. You can only see what's right in front of you. He sees everything. So again, Job's argument here is if God sees everything and knows everything, then he knows what he's doing. He's in control, and he knows what the outcome is of the things that he is performing. So what are we going to say? How are we going to argue with that God? God understands the way of wisdom. He knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth, and he sees everything under the heavens. When he imparted weight to the wind, I I don't even get that. When you walk outside, there's going to be a little bit of wind. Weigh it. Figure out what the weight of the wind is. You don't know. He meted out the waters by measure. When we go to school, we're taught that the oceans, which take up roughly two-thirds of the planet, we don't even know the complete depth of them, and nobody knows how much water covers the earth. And yet, Job just said, God measured it. He meted it out. He poured it out cup by cup. He knows exactly how many gallons of water are on the planet, and he's in charge of sucking that water up into his clouds, and he's responsible for pouring it back out onto the planet. He meted out the waters by measure. He measured them. He knows how much it is. When he set a limit for the rain... And a course for the thunderbolt. He's in charge of the storms. He's in charge of the clouds. He's in charge of where that water goes. And then he saw it. God did. And he declared it. 
and he established it. And he also searched it out. In other words, there's no limit to his understanding. He sees everything, he declares everything, he establishes everything, and then he searches it all out. He knows everything. And to man, he said, oh, finally we get to man. That was like a lot of God's absolute sovereignty. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that's wisdom. Does that sound familiar? The Bible keeps saying it. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You don't know anything till you know the reverence of God. Until you are in awe of God. He doesn't mean fear here like slavish fear. He doesn't mean, you know, saying, oh, it's God, run, I'm, I'm so scared. He means being in reverential awe of God. Here, I'll put it this way. If an angel walked through the door right now, there he, if an angel walked through, did I fool anybody? I did. Kyla looked back. Oh, that was great. Okay, I fooled one person. If an angel walked in right now, would we all be standing up going, hey, how are you? What's shaking, Gabriel? No, we'd be in reverential awe. Most of us would be on our face. And then based on the Bible, the angel would say, don't do that. Don't worship me. Worship God. I'm a fellow servant like you are. Yeah, but you're an angel. <laughs> I'm a sinner. And you're from God. And I'm scared. Okay, so God now. Take it to the nth degree. We're not just talking angels here. We're talking God himself. He says, Unless you have that kind of reverential awe for God, it doesn't matter how much stuff you collect in this lifetime. It doesn't matter the power, the authority that you amass to yourself in this lifetime. It doesn't matter the book learning. It doesn't matter how deep you manage to dig into the planet. It doesn't matter how well you circumnavigate the earth on the oceans. It doesn't matter what you do in this lifetime, rich or poor. Whether you're doing well or you're doing evil, if you don't know the awe of God, you know nothing. Because when you leave this planet, one thing is going to stand between eternal condemnation and eternal glory. And that is your reverence and worship to God. Do you follow what God said? Do you you search out what God thinks. And if he sends his son and says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, hear him. Well, if you worship him and have awe of him, you're going to listen to his son because he said to. And then you find out that his son is the mediator between you and the wrath of that God. But it all starts at genuine reverence for God. So it doesn't matter what you know in this lifetime. It doesn't matter what you amass in this lifetime. It doesn't matter how important you become in this lifetime. When you stand before God, the real God, the eternal God, the holy God, the judge God, the sovereign God, when you stand in front of him, you better already have reverential fear and awe and, and worship of him on your lips. Or he's going to send you into outer darkness. And there's no gray area and there's no in-between. So really then, what's genuine wisdom? Genuine wisdom is get on your face before God. Genuine wisdom is worship that God. 
And if you can't bring yourself to do that, you're stupid. Is that too harsh? No. He just kept saying, you're a fool. He saw it, and he declared it, and he established it, and he searched it out, and he said to man, Behold the fear of the Lord, that's wisdom. And to depart from evil, that's what understanding is. So what's wisdom? What's understanding? It's to fear God and to eschew evil. That's it. Next week, we will get to Job beginning to say, man, I used to really be something. And then he, in the next chapter, is going to say, and now I'm like less than nothing. In fact, he's even going to say, there are young people making fun of me whose fathers I wouldn't even let sleep with my dogs. I mean, he's, he's really looking at how low he's fallen. And that's going to inspire him to start saying, God's got to answer me. God's got to explain this to me. I do have the fear of God. I do reverence God. And I have eschewed evil, and yet this has all befallen me. God needs to explain it. And he's going to start justifying himself, and even Job is going to go too far. And Elihu is going to try to bring him back from the edge. <laughs> then God's going to show up and go, okay, let me straighten this one out. So, and then God's going to declare absolute sovereignty. All right? All right. Questions about that tonight? Are you glad we're back to Wednesday Job stuff? Yes. Isn't it amazing how these lessons from Job, which I keep saying is arguably the oldest book in the Old Testament, isn't it amazing how the theological concepts and lessons in Job are just as current today as they've ever been? Spirit of God knew what he was doing. I saw your hand up. Isn't it time for a left turn to Ecclesiastes? <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting that you say that. Because I've been giving some thought to where we go next after Job. And I mean, we're a couple months away from being done with it. But I thought Ecclesiastes. That's, I'm sort of hanging around the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes lately. So. You're welcome. Well, so we'll see. That's my plan. You know Solomon had to have read all of this because oh, yeah. it sounds like him. Oh, very much so. Really? Yeah. We'll see what God says, but that's my thinking at the moment. And I learned a while ago, not to tell God what I'm going to do. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> All right, good. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Bye. Oh, come on. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. <laughs> goodbye. Bye. 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 <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.